Dr. Benson, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to being here with you and talking all things functional medicine today. Good deal. I'm excited to talk to you because I we're going to dive into a subject that is definitely not addressed enough, I think. Um, and a lot of people just suffer with problems instead of getting really getting true answers. So I'm hoping we can give a lot of people some answers today. But first and foremost, let's go first with who are you? Well, that is a great question. So um, I am trained and certified in functional medicine through the Institute for Functional Medicine. And um, I also have a master's degree in nutrition and a background as a doctor of chiropractic. So kind of a wide scope of holistic um, treatments that we offer to patients. And I currently live in practice in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is a really kind of unique and fun spot to be raising our family. We have two boys. And for the past few years, I've also been homeschooling. So it's uh, every day is quite an adventure to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> Now, are you still, I'm just curious now, are you still homeschooling because of COVID shutdowns or did you realize they did better once they were home? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. So initially we, you know, started homeschooling because of COVID, but my kids love it, you know, so much. And we've developed a really great community um, of homeschooling families and they've just decided they want to continue homeschooling. So we've been continuing homeschooling and we actually plan to continue next year. And I work alongside of my husband, Dr. Scott Benson. So the two of us um, own and run our practice together. And so, you know, sort of a collaborative effort on the homeschooling and the practice running. <laughs> so, yeah. Sounds like a very big tank tag team effort going on. Definitely. It's definitely a big tag team effort, but it's great. And, and, you know, we really love it. It, it it's great for our family and um, you know, it's great to be able to teach them these habits, um, these health habits as they're young and growing and uh, good for them to see kind of us working in this arena too. So it's, it's all good. That's awesome. Well, let's, what I want to talk about first is um, what functional medicine is. Cause I know the term is getting more common. It's not that it's just thrown out there, but it's getting more common. But it, um, I think a lot of people might not actually know what it is when they hear the term. So what is functional medicine? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question. And so functional medicine is really a, um, it's a system of looking at the body and it's looking at the body through the lens of a matrix and looking to systems of the body um, and focusing on imbalances and rather than say um, in a more traditional approach, a lot of times they look to name and tame diseases. In functional medicine, we're really looking to find the root cause, the imbalance, kind of the cause of the cause of the disease itself. So I'm not really as focused on necessarily, you know, diagnosing the disease and you know finding the pill for every ill. We're really looking to establish, you know, what is an underlying imbalance that this patient is um, experiencing, and then how is that creating this condition that they're experiencing? And so we're really looking um, very much to epigenetics. So um, when we look at and think about epigenetics, I I always tell patients to think of their life like this long movie, and their cells are like the actors in the movie, and then their genes are like the script. And so their cells are following along this genetic script and everybody is given a different genetic script, right? I mean, for some people, it's like, they just get this amazing genetic script. It's like, good for you. You know, like, <laughs> it just goes so well. 
you know, for most of us, I feel like we have a pretty decent genetic script with a couple of funky scenes. And for some people, it really is just a very challenging genetic script, you know, but your genes are not your destiny. And that's very much also um, a major tenet of functional medicine is saying, you know, there are these epigenetic factors at play. And so we look at epigenetics like the director of the movie. So how are your genes being directed based on lifestyle? And then looking um, at, um, you know, these specific lifestyle factors in determining how they can be um, causing those genes to express. So primarily, we're really looking at factors such as nutrition, exercise, physical activity, stress management and stress transformation, how patients are you know, managing and dealing with stress in their bodies. Um, we're looking at sleep. We're looking at exposure to environmental factors. So we're very much looking to lifestyle first, you know, to see where there could be imbalances and then how those imbalances are, um, you know, creating that genetic expression. So, and that's what epigenetics really is. It's saying, okay, how are our genes expressing based on these lifestyle factors? And we know that so many chronic diseases can be prevented or modulated by modulating those lifestyle factors. Awesome. That's a great um, explanation. And it's so fascinating when you start really diving into like, you know, so many, uh, there's a lot of genetic testing you can get now to see, you know, what your, what your DNA has, what your could be yeah. in the future. And yeah, that so much of that just is, is comes down more to if you turn the gene on or not is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. And I think we're just kind of at the tip of the iceberg, you know, um, with that, but yeah, I think beginning to understand, okay, you know, how do these, um, you know, these gene SNPs, these single nucleotide polymorphisms, like how those are expressing in our body. And, um, you know, I think there's just a lot of, a lot to learn. And I think we're just starting to really learn how to use that information in a clinically useful way. I don't think we're there yet, <laughs> but I think we're starting, we're really starting to understand it, which is exciting. It's, it's very exciting. Definitely. Now with what you do, do you ever use traditional medications or is it solely lifestyle change and holistic things? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it really depends. So the Institute for Functional Medicine um, they, um, they certify practitioners of all different, um, clinical professions, you know, different areas of, of medicine. So there are, um, medical doctors, DOs, there are chiropractors, you know, there are nurse practitioners. Um, so they're acupuncturists. So it really kind of, um, runs the spectrum. And so a, a practitioner who is a medical doctor, some of those, um, you know, types of licenses, they will prescribe medication. Um, but if you see a doctor of chiropractic or an acupuncturist or a naturopath, um, they won't be using medis medication, you know, in the course of their um, protocols or treatments. So it really depends on the type of provider, you know, that you would see. But I do know that there are, you know, medical doctors who continue to prescribe in functional medicine. But really, the crux of it is, Again, not the pill for every ill, but finding those underlying imbalances, but using medication when necessary. And I, 
I work alongside of, you know, rheumatologists and gastroenterologists and many, you know, primary care doctors. And so it's a very collaborative effort. It's not saying that a patient would never need a medication or there's no place for it. I mean, that's certainly not, you know, the tenor it's really standard of care plus. So, you know, whatever the standard of care is for your specific healthcare profession, it's saying we're going above and beyond that. And again, really looking to, um, to lifestyle imbalances. Awesome. Very cool. So I know, um, kind of another term that's thrown around a lot that, um, is very related to what you do because of how it relates to everything in the body is the microbiome. Yeah. What first off, what is the microbiome? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's such a great question. And again, like tip of the iceberg, right? I think we are just on the edge of medical understanding (laughs) when it comes to the microbiome. But I feel like this is the most exciting and for me, really the most clinically useful um, area of research that's been evolving and it's evolving so quickly. So the microbiome, it really is, um, looking at the microorganisms that are in your body. And we are, from what, you know, science is telling us, we are perhaps more bacterial than we are cellular. Um, you know, and there are some who are saying like exponentially more and some who are saying maybe a little bit less, maybe the human cells went out you know, to a degree and for every person, it's a little bit different. Um, but we, you know, have come to realize and understand, you know, we have hundreds of different species of these bacteria. And also when we're looking at the the microbiome, we could also be talking about the microbiome, you know, which is yeast or, you know, fungus, protozoa, you know, we have many of these microorganisms that are living, um, they're living with us. So, um, but, you know, we were, we're thinking that, you know, more bacterial than cellular human cells, more bacterial DNA than human DNA. And um, when you really start to process that, you start to understand the clinical impact of the microbiome and how it could be, you know, impacting everything from not only digestive health, but, you know, we're now linking mood disorder or skin disorders, or, you know, so especially when it comes to the gut microbiome, now the gut microbiome, we have trillions of bacteria that are in our gut and, you know, estimates are anywhere from 300 to 500 different species of bacteria in our gut. And these bacteria, you know, are responsible for a lot of processes in the body from metabolism, um, to us breaking down our food, you know, these bacteria that live with us, they eat what we eat. They get stressed when we're stressed, you know? So, um, so they, you know, they really play a tremendous role in our overall health. And we're just starting to map these bacteria and begin to understand again, their, their clinical impact. Your microbiome is like a fingerprint. It is completely unique to you. And I always say it's like the sum of all of your parts, right? So as an infant, um, were you delivered vaginally or, you know, were you delivered via C-section? Do, um, did your parents let you play in the dirt or was it like hand sanitizer all day, every day? Did you, um, have a lot of antibiotics growing up or, you know, do you have more recent antibiotic exposure? What kind of food do you eat? How much exercise? How do you sleep? You know, so there's so many different components that make up this microbiome. And, you know, when we're talking about that, those bacteria, we can really break them up into like three different types. We could say they're beneficial, they're harmful, 
or they're opportunistic. In other words, these bacteria, while they help our body to, you know, produce the feel good, happy neurotransmitter serotonin, like awesome, right? Um, they help us to, you know, break down food and, um, you know, so yay, like that's great. <laughs> but then there are some that are really harmful to the body. And then there are some that are opportunistic, like they're ready and waiting to be harmful to the body. <laughs> so it's this sort of fine line and this dance, you know, that we have and really the goal. Um, and one of the, you know, main areas of functional medicine is really looking to gut health and seeing how gut health really can impact overall health. Um, because we know that changes in that microbiome and we call this dysbiosis. So these are negative changes in gut bacteria where we have more of those harmful bacteria, more of those opportunistic bacteria, less of the beneficial bacteria, or even just less diversity overall um, can have pretty significant clinical impacts for people. And that's something you and I could definitely unpack more too, because I think that's, um, you know, I think that's a big, um, you know, piece of the equation for a lot of people, especially if they're suffering from gut dysfunction is an underlying dysbiosis. Yeah. And I do want to dive into that, but something, and not that I want to go down this rabbit hole, but something that you said is something I've been considering for a while is like what I'm calling COVID kids. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see, you know, for like kids from like zero to two right now who grew um, up with Sanitize <laughs> everywhere, face masks everywhere. It'll be interesting what happens with their immunity and, and everything yeah. as they get older. I think, I think time will definitely tell, but it is going to be interesting, you know, to see, and we're becoming hyper sanitized and it's definitely, you know, impacting our gut microbiome. And we're seeing, you know, more, um, atopic dermatitis and allergy and, you know, just more gut dysfunction overall. I mean, you know, one in seven people have IBS. I mean, it's like, you know, these are significant numbers that we're talking about and many people live with, you know, some form of gut dysfunction. So it's, it's pretty common at this point. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the dysbiosis. I, we do want to dive into the IBS, but let's talk about dysbiosis and this, like, why does this happen? How does this happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So, <clears throat> and there can be, you know, a variety of reasons, but if we talk about like the most common, you know, from what I see, it really is like a process kind of standard American diet can definitely be at the root, you know, of these dysbiotic changes. Um, and, you know, it can also be high stress. We see in people who have high levels of stress that they tend to have higher levels of dysbiosis. And then it becomes a chicken and an egg sort of scenario because we know that um, stress creates dysbiosis. And we know that dysbiosis creates mood disorder. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's a vicious cycle that many patients, you know, find themselves in. Um, but stress can definitely be a root cause of dysbiosis. Um, you know, lack of sleep can be a root cause of, you know, those negative changes in the gut bacteria, environmental factors, um, you know, toxin exposure can, can play a role. Um, you know, for some people, they don't have enough stomach acid. You know, we're always looking to give people who have any kind of reflux, you know, proton pump inhibitors and bring down the acid levels. And, you know, we do that. And then we create, you know, dysbiosis in the small intestine or SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, you know? So, so there can be a variety of causes, but I would say, you know, what's, what's most common. And I see a lot of times in my practice really comes down to lifestyle and it really is, 
you know, diet-based, um, you know, we're looking at, again, changes in sleep. A lot of people um, just aren't sleeping well, sleeping enough, and they're under a lot of stress. And that really kind of sets the stage for dysbiosis. What impact does uh, antibiotic use have on that? Definitely. Yeah. So that can definitely play a role as well. Um, and so especially we see in patients who have, you know, chronic exposure, especially to antibiotics or, you know, we even um, in functional medicine, the, the Institute for Functional Medicine very much trains its practitioner to take a timeline. So we actually start at birth and we work our way up to the current day with each patient. And we, you know, even examine like what was the antibiotic use, you know, in childhood and how, you know, does that play a role? So um, you know, unquestionably, you know, I think exposure to antibiotics, especially over time can, um, you know, have a significant impact on the gut microbiota and, um, and that's where probiotics can really shine for a lot of these patients. If, you know, there's a need for an antibiotic, but I think, you know, I think it's kind of known across the board that antibiotics have been overprescribed, you know, and I think there's some call to action on, um, you know, being more judicious in, you know, the prescription of antibiotics, especially in young kids, um, as you know, they're really forming and their, their gut is forming. And, um, so I, I think there's definitely a call to action there to, you know, reduce our dependence on antibiotics. And, and now we're finding probiotics are a lot of times for a lot of, especially say like gut, um, infection or disorder, or, you know, uh, H pylori, for example, you know, the triple therapy or, antibiotic therapy has been kind of standard of care, but now they're saying, wait, even if we just give patients probiotics, that's enough to modulate the gut bacteria in a way that, um, you know, could quell that infection. So, so it's interesting. We're, we're, again, we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg here, but yeah, absolutely. Antibiotic use can set people up for dysbiosis. So you mentioned probiotics as a way to help start restoring things. Um, what else do we, can people do to like, if they have severe dysbiosis or just have been on antibiotics and wiped out their gut health, like what can people do to start restoring things? Yeah, I think diet hands down, you know, is, is key. I think, um, you know, one, first and foremost, working to unprocess the diet and what I always champion for all my patients is, you know, especially if they're getting started, read every food label and you want to look for added sugar numbers and chemicals, red dye, number 40, polysorbate, number 80, like don't eat numbers. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, and watch and watch for the chemicals and really work to unprocess the diet, eat from the earth, not a test tube, focus on, you know, foods that are grown in the ground, brightly colored foods and very important for restoring, um, you know, the microbiome is variety of diet, which many people kind of eat the same 50 foods over and over again, but our bodies really need, you know, that exposure to a good variety of different kinds of foods. And for people who can tolerate them, fermented foods, you know, are also, are also really helpful. And I would say, you know, that's all very impactful, you know, for many people who are, who are dealing with dysbiosis or these changes in the gut bacteria. I would also say for many people, and this is where working with a functional medicine provider, um, a certified provider, and 
You can really find um, a certified provider by going to the ifm.org and they have a find a provider page, but working with someone one-on-one -on -one to really establish what's going on, particularly with your gut health, um, you know, I think is really important. And, you know, I think doing those GI map testing or SIBO breath testing and, and looking to see, you know, what kind of diet would really be the best for you. But for many patients, the low FODMAPs diet is, um, it's a total game changer. So I'm not sure if you've, um, you're very familiar with the low FODMAPs diet or have experience with that, but I, I'd be happy to kind of talk about that a little bit more if you think. Yeah, I'm familiar with it, but why don't you dive into it for anyone who's not? Yeah, that's great. And I actually wrote a book on this. So the cool girl's guide to the FODMAP diet. And I know guys have IBS too. Okay. So <laughs> I've gotten like so many comments on that. So that will be my next book. But I wrote it for girls of all ages who are dealing, you know, with digestive issues. Um, the low FODMAPs diet, um, what we're looking to do is to reduce the amount of fermentable carbohydrates that are taken in through the diet. And when we do this, it really can help to, you know, to, to modulate the gut bacteria in a, in a beneficial way and to reduce inflammation in the gastrointestinal system. And there's so much literature now supporting the use of a low FODMAPs diet for a host of gastrointestinal disorders, not just IBS, but also SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, you know, for even inflammatory bowel disease, I see clinically such good results. So, um, but what we're looking to do, it's kind of like there's this pot on the stove and the pot's like about to boil over. And for anybody who has digestive issues, they can probably really feel this, right? It's like, so their pot is getting up to a boil, they eat something. And the next thing they know, like their entire system just feels like it's exploding. Okay. And so the idea with the low FODMAPs diet is to bring that whole pot down to a simmer. And we do that by reducing the amount of food that they're intaking that contains these fermentable carbohydrates. Now, every single carbohydrate ferments. Okay. Every single one. So, but some carbohydrates ferment more quickly than other carbohydrates. And so what we work to do is reduce that amount over a 30 day period of time. So really focus only on the foods that are low in fermentable carbs. And I should say this. So FODMAP is an acronym for people who haven't heard of this before. So it's fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So these are just the different types of carbohydrates. But, um, and so we're looking to reduce that whole load over a 30 day period of time, and then systematically reintroduce or challenge in those different fermentable carbohydrate types one at a time to see specifically which foods the patient might be sensitive to. And I see this be incredibly impactful for people. And it really resonates, you know, with them when they start to make this connection between their gut um, symptoms and gut dysfunction and um, how this diet can really improve significantly those symptoms. And I know you work with a lot of, you know, runners and, um, you know, a lot of athletes. And this is where, you know, we see a lot of um, athletes have, you know, a lot of gut dysfunction, you know, so especially more like elite athletes, endurance athletes, you know, this is like a known phenomenon. 
And, um, and a lot of times, you know, they're running and they're hitting these gels and they're, you know, engaging in like these sports drinks and different things that are very high fermentable, very um, high in fermentable carbs. And, um, and so it's kind of like adding fuel to the fire and, you know, increasing their diarrhea or, um, gas bloating, you know, any of those kinds of symptoms. Is that the primary reason I'm um, kind of diving into the whole impact on runners? Is that the the primary reason that like so many runners have the digestive issues. Cause I'm like, I know from when I was running in high school, like you always joked about like the runner shots and like all that stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. um, is that, is it primarily the carbohydrates or is there something else going on in a runner or endurance athlete's body? And I think every person is different. And again, I think it's important to kind of individualize it and determine you know, again, like back to the root cause. So, you know, every person could potentially have a different, you know, root cause, but definitely like irritable bowel syndrome is common in runners. And I'll say this too, you know, a lot of times people are given a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. And I still think it's important. Like if you've been given that diagnosis to, to still look to identify, is there still a cause of the cause, you know, is there still something underlying that's causing that irritable bowel syndrome. So for a lot of patients, I see it is a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or, you know, they have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency or, you know, so I think for every person, like if it's really an issue and it's, you know, decreasing the quality of your runs or your athletic performance, like working with someone one-on-one to, to identify what's at the root cause is really important. But I would say, you know, in general, I think there can be a couple of different reasons. Would I say that a high FODMAP um, approach to food could be one of, you know, one of those root causes, like ab- absolutely. And I think it absolutely adds fuel to the fire. Like I look at a lot of these, you know, um, uh, foods that are promoted, you know, for athletes and I'm looking at the ingredients and I'm going, oh my word, like we're destroying these people's guts. Like, you know, so, and I think I'm, I'm happy to share with you a couple alternatives, you know, to those, if you're interested in that as well. But I, I do think for a lot of people, yes, that could be um, a root cause, but I also think that, um, you know, studies show that runners tend to have higher increased intestinal permeability, um, which can also be, you know, kind of a part of this. Um, and, you know, over-exercise can create those inflammatory changes in the gut, which can also, you know, be problematic when you're running, you're putting your, especially if you're running a race, right? So there's a difference between like running. Cause you're like, yeah, it feels good. It's like restorative running. Right. And then like competitive running, like I have to crush my time and, you know, those are, those are two different ends of the spectrum. And, um, when we're looking, especially more at the competitive runner running, you know, you're, you're putting yourself into a sympathetic mode, right? So, so we've got these two parts of the nervous system. You've got the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and the sympathetic is fight or flight and the parasympathetics rest and digest, you know, and when you're running, you're putting your body into that fight or flight mode, you know, and when you do, it does create some ischemia or like lack of blood flow to the um, intestines, right? So uh, when that happens, you know, a lot of times we get these um, inflammatory changes and, um, and, and that alone can promote the GI dysfunction. So again, it's like, there can be multiple causes, but I would definitely say, you know, ways to look at this clinically is definitely to, you know, trial a low FODMAPs diet. I think that can be helpful. I think the probiotics can definitely be helpful, you know, and I also think working to reduce 
like stress, especially around competitive running, you know, with, um, you know, the deep breathing exercises and, you know, those kinds of things can also be really helpful to, you know, help pull your body from sympathetic, more in balance, you know, um, I, I think that can be, I, I think that can be helpful too. So did that answer your question? It did. It did. Um, and I do want to dive into like foods for athletes a little bit too, just because I'm the same way. I look at these different things that are made for athletes and I just cringe. I'm like, there's like a handful of things that I will like me personally will actually purchase. Then like, okay, there's actually yeah. no food product or <laughs> ingredients in here, but most yeah. very cringeworthy when we talk about the like overall health of the body. So what sort of things do you suggest for athletes? Yeah. And so again, like if we're talking about the general food approach, I think always the, the baseline is, you know, choosing as many, you know, foods of color as you can get, you know, I think, I think that's, I think that's important. And I think, you know, eating from the earth, watching all of your labels and, you know, if it's got the sugar numbers and chemicals really working to, you know, avoid those. And, um, when it comes to low FODMAPs diet, you know, I think that's, a, a big conversation to just kind of lay map out and lay out exactly, you know, which foods are problematic and which foods are, are the best, but, um, you know, that could definitely be a, a better conversation, like maybe for another day, I would say for competitive, um, you know, food sources, um, and, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the sports drinks, I think people are kind of wising up to the ingredients put in the sports drinks. And I, I said earlier to eat a lot of foods of color, but never fluorescent. Okay. So if something is fluorescent, like don't eat or drink that. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. So, and I think a lot of athletes, like they're so in tune with their bodies and then they're like, you know, putting fluorescent things in. So, I mean, that's just like not going to work. Okay. <laughs> so I think instead of a lot of those sports drinks, I'm a fan of um, LMNT. Have you seen that product at all? Or yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a great one. And I see people do very well with that. Um, and I like to, um, there's a brand untapped. Are you familiar with that at all? I've heard it's of that. actually I'm overly familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think their website is like untapped.cc, but they have, um, they have like maple syrup, uh, derived products. And so with all just, you know, whole food ingredients and nothing sketchy. So those, you know, those can be really good options for athletes because maple syrup is also going to be low FODMAP, you know, so that's also going to be um, helpful because again, even like the honey, uh, any of the honey shots or gels or, you know, honey is high FODMAP. So you think you're at least doing something natural and then you're, you know, creating that, you know, increased permeability and dysbiosis and issues, you know, if you're sensitive and people who are sensitive to it, that can be problematic, but the maple syrup derived, um, you know, foods, you know, that, that can be, you know, much more helpful or, um, the go macro bars, those are also low FODMAP. So that, that can be very helpful as well, especially when you're needing, you know, to find quick sources of, you know, carbohydrates, those can be, those can kind of be the best. So, um, pull a random question with honey, but I'm yeah. curious if you know, <laughs> so is there like with how it processes in the body, is there a difference between like the raw unpasteurized honey compared to like the shelf stable. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think you're going to get more of the nutrients from the raw honey in terms of how it would be processed by your gut as a fermentable carb. That's not going to make any difference to my understanding. I've never seen anything, um, that would, you know, show that you would have less fermentability and like a raw honey, as opposed to, you know, a typical shelf stable honey. But, you know, I think there is some thought that there are higher nutrient densities in those raw and local honeys, you know, especially for people who perhaps have like seasonal allergy or, you know, I think those are going to be a better bet for those, you know, individuals. And I, I do recommend if you can, you know, doing the raw, um, local honey, you know, whenever possible, but from a gut perspective, you know, if we're talking about people who have gut dysfunction or who need to, you know, focus on low FODMAP. Um, that's not going to make any difference. Just no. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think so. To fructose, I should, I should caveat that if you're sensitive to fructose, right? So there are different types of fermentable carbs. And we talked about lowering that, you know, fermentable carbohydrate pot down to a simmer, right. For those 30 days. But then as you systematically introduce those back in, you might find that you tolerate fructose well, and then honey's back on the table again. If you don't tolerate fructose well, you know, honey would, would not be a good choice. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I was just curious because I, I, uh, use local or raw local honey for allergies, like you said, yeah. and but most like after it sits like towards the end of the jar, it's like starting to crystallize. <laughs> and so I'm like, <laughs> it changes form. So I was just wondering if it had a, if it was different, yeah. anything. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, cool. So as far as actually, let's go this direction. She don't mind. Um, obviously functional medicine is a huge thing. Microbiome is a huge thing. Um, we don't want to go down any like major rabbit holes necessarily, but, um, anything from the like microbiome IBS standpoint that we haven't talked about today, that would be really important to bring up. I think for patients who have been diagnosed with IBS, but they haven't been tested for SIBO, I definitely recommend having a SIBO breath test and working with a practitioner who um, will help you to get a SIBO breath test done. Because I would say, you know, so many people, you know, they, they come to me and they find me because um, you know, either they've been told that their condition is all in their head, which is so heartbreaking to me as a practitioner, I can't really stand it, you know, or they've just been told like, there's nothing, you know, that can be done to help you like further, there's nothing further that we can do. And so, um, you know, I, I think a lot of times we're testing these, these patients and we're finding in fact, no, like this is, you know, a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And this can be really well-treated and well-managed. And those people find like significant, you know, relief. And usually that's a course of, you know, the low FODMAPs diet, the elimination diet and challenge phase. And then um, also a lot of times herbal antimicrobial therapy or using um, and, and also using probiotics, but they really can find a lot of relief. And so I do think working with someone who can, you know, help you to get tested for SIBO can be helpful. Also looking at exocrine pancreatic insufficiency or getting a GI map test done, or, you know, some kind of stool testing done 
Um, these tests can be, you know, they can really reveal a lot. And again, we're looking to those imbalances, you know, but they can reveal a lot in terms of imbalance. And, you know, with the help of a qualified practitioner, so many of these patients can find so much relief. Um, and, you know, and I think that is, again, where functional medicine shines is, is when we're looking at chronic diseases and say, you know, we're looking at thyroid from a different perspective or eczema from a different perspective. And a lot of times we're looking to gut dysfunction as, you know, the root of a lot of these, you know, auto, autoimmune diseases or hormonal imbalances or, you know, so, so I think it's important to work with somebody and not just, you know, say, oh, okay, maybe it is all in my head or I just have to live with it. And there's really no other, you know, option for me. Or if you've been told that, you know, what you eat doesn't matter. It's like, yes, it does. <laughs> it absolutely matters. And want to work with somebody who will listen to you and really look to find the root of that condition. I believe that conditions are conditional. I think if you find, you know, what is causing that condition, you know, you can, you can impact the outcome of it significantly. And I think it's important for people to realize they're not defined, you know, by a condition or disorder or disease, but really to continue to look for those imbalances that can help to modulate and improve that disorder or disease. Awesome. I love that. Um, I'm curious, the SIBO breath test, does the, yeah. does your, what you exhale become like more alkaline or like alcohol yeah. or like what happens? No, it's a, I mean, that's a great question. And so, um, the, the test that I really advocate for, um, is trio smart. And so that trio smart test, it's, it's actually kind of newer to the market, but what we're looking for actually is hydrogen methane or hydrogen sulfide gas. Okay. So when you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and you breathe into a bag every 15 minutes for a few hours after following a diet, you know, specific kind of diet, and then drinking, um, a glucose or lactulose solution, you know, you're followed by these breath tests. And if you have these gases in your breath, it's a sign it's showing that you have this bacteria where it doesn't belong <laughs> and it's overgrowing and it's contributing. So I would say it's very much characterized by, you know, gas and bloating, especially for people who tell me I, you know, gas and bloating, I start flat as a board in the morning and I wake up, you know, I wake up doing well. And by 4 PM, I look nine months pregnant, you know? So especially for those patients who are dealing with gas, bloating, abdominal distension, you know, diarrhea, you know, they're all so characteristic of hydrogen, um, SIBO. And then we're looking, you know, when we look at methane, there are people who are just backed up, the people who are super constipated. Most of the time we see, um, in addition to the bloating gas, you know, abdominal pain, um, you know, a lot of times they're testing methane positive. And then for the people who tell me that they're, you know, their poop smells like sulfur. It's like a lot of times that is the hydrogen sulfide, you know? So, um, there are really kind of these characteristics, but again, this is something that can be treated. It can be treated conventionally. Um, Zyfaxin is the antibiotic that's frequently prescribed, but I find so many people respond incredibly well to herbal antimicrobial therapies. Um, you know, especially an, a low FODMAPs diet for these people, a lot of times can really work wonders, um, you know, and then also, you know, judicious use and really systematic use of probiotics, you know, all the, all the strains, you know, really looking to, you know, both the bifidobacterium and lactobacillus and then Saccharomyces boulardii, that beneficial yeast, um, and then the bacillus species, you know, so kind of looking to all of those, 
um, and, and incorporating, um, incorporating those together um, can be, you know, so, so impactful for these patients. But then again, too, sometimes we need to get to the cause of the cause of the SIBO. Okay. It's like, <laughs> all right, well, what's causing the SIBO? <laughs> so, um, but this is, again, like, I, I know I'm championing this a lot, but working with a certified provider who really has an understanding of this and can help you to really um, determine uniquely for you, you know, what's at the root of the symptoms can be so impactful and, and life-changing for so many people. Yeah. Dr. Benson, this was all super fascinating, super informative. Um, if someone has more questions, wants to find your book, um, or just wants to kind of know more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, that's, thanks for asking. So, um, drkristenbenson.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook again, you know, uh, Dr. Kristen Benson, and there's a T in there, B-E-N-T-S-O-N. So, um, you know, but I'm, I'm on all the major platforms and then, um, my book, the cool girl's guide to the FODMAP diet, everything you need to get savvy about and beat digestive issues for life. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Target, kind of all the places. So very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much.